0: I'll be reading a scripture from Luke 19, 28 through 44. And after Jesus had said this, he went on ahead, going to Jerusalem. As he approached Bethpage and Bethany at the hill called the Mount of Olives, he sent two of his disciples, saying to them, Go to the village ahead of you, and as you enter it, you will find a colt tied there which no one has ever ridden. untie it and bring it here. If anyone asks you, why are you untying it, saying, the Lord needs it. Those who were sent ahead went and found it just as he had told them. As they were untying the colt, its owners asked them, why are you untying the colt? They replied, the Lord needs it. They brought it to Jesus threw their cloaks on the colt, but now it is hidden from your eyes. The days will come upon you when your enemies will build an embarkment against you and encircle you and hem you in on every side. They will dash you to the ground and you and your children within your walls. They will not leave one stone on another because you did not recognize the time of God's coming to you. The word of the Lord. Thanks be to God.
1: Let me pray for us really quickly. Heavenly Father... I just ask, as the details of this story will be brand new to some and familiar to many, uh, I pray that we could see the significance of you walking into Jerusalem uh, 2,000 years ago. And even as we prayed at the beginning of this service, that we would allow you to uh, make a home in our hearts today uh, in the same way that you are willing to plunge yourself into the middle of our real human experience. And I pray, Holy Spirit, that you would come and take us beyond just what's prepared on uh, in our in our, in our our prayers and our songs and in the sermon, Lord, that you would just communicate uh, in the depths of our being what we need to hear from you today as individuals and as a church family. We commit this time to you, God. We need you in every way. And we humble ourselves to, to say that. Uh, it is our... It's even our joy to say that we need you, and so we we just invite you in, in Jesus' name, amen. So pressing into Jerusalem on this day is a throng of people. It was a holiday week. People had had left their homes. They had left their their daily work. Uh, Many had traveled with family and friends. Uh, For some, the journey itself had had taken days to get to Jerusalem. Jerusalem. Passover was approaching, and even though Israel was occupied by the most dominant military power in the world, they were going to gather to remember when God had set them free from another most powerful empire in the world, when God had pried open the hands of Pharaoh with mighty signs and wonders. That's that's the feast that they are coming to Jerusalem to celebrate. The, symbol, the symbolic power of this holiday would not have been lost on the leaders who were uh, leading the occupying force. Rome's legion was also going to make a show of power on this particular week to remind everyone just who was running things, that, hey, Rome's not Egypt, thank you very much. And even as you gather to tell your tales of Yahweh, just remember that we brought the Pax Romana and we'll be the ones collecting collecting the taxes. Caesar is Lord. So, in and, and, and light of the occupying force, Rome's might, the buzz around the city of a holiday week, The entry of this rabbi from Galilee perhaps would have raised little notice an ordinary year. Um, John's gospel, however, tells us that something had stirred the crowd and that more people than might have been present were present and that, that the reason was one of Jesus' most incredible miracles had just been recently performed. His friend Lazarus had fallen sick. He had been it seems like even intentionally delayed in getting there and found that Lazarus had passed on and he performed a miracle raising Lazarus from the dead, one of the most dramatic and powerful miracles of Jesus' entire ministry. And the word about that had begun to spread. People wanted to get a look at this man to see if he was the real thing, if he was a threat or if he was something to hope in or something maybe in between both of those. Some of them have been following Jesus for a long time. Some would have certainly been caught up in the moment. I want to hear about this this Messiah from Galilee. I want to hear about this one who's done all the miracles. My my cousin was there when he fed the 5,000. I want to see what he's really like. With distance and reflection, you and I, with distance and reflection, can make or try to make clean distinctions between what's, what's holy, what's obviously something God is doing, and then the ordinary. We... we, we often like to sort of make those divisions that there's a spiritual world and then there's the natural world, uh, that there's the fantastic and then there's the mundane. But in the scene that we read about this morning on Palm Sunday, just as in our real life, all those things are squeezed together and the lines are blurred. Everyone knows why they are in Jerusalem. It's, it's the Passover. That's the simple, easy explanation for why people are there. But but there is another reason as well, and Jesus has been hinting at it, even explicitly sharing it with some of his close friends. He knows what coming into this city this particular time is going to mean for him. He knows, in a sense, what he's walking into. So we have this demonstrated miracle worker, this teacher with growing Renown. We have his triumphant disciples. Now, finally, we're coming into Jerusalem. Now there'll be this conflict between the powers that be and, and, and Jesus' kingdom. And, the, and he's Messiah, the promised one. We, we've sort of put all of our, 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 our weight and belief behind backing him as, as, as Messiah. Now we're walking into, this, into the city. Now we've arrived. This moment can take off. We have a small issue of transportation that comes up in the story. Jesus has decided, seemingly last minute, that he needs a donkey, um, that he wants to ride into town. Presumably, they've walked in every other time, but now Jesus is ready to, to, to get on the donkey and to ride in. So he sends his disciples. It's like, I think it's like, in the midst of everything else that happens in Holy Week, a pretty amusing part of the story. Um, he sends his disciples to get the, the donkey. They had this sort of very awkward moment where they've gone ahead into the village, like he says. They find a donkey tied up, and they sort of have to start stealing it And then the the owners come out and say, what are you doing? And they're like, they have this beautiful theological explanation. The Lord needs it. And apparently that flew in this time just outside of Jerusalem. You were allowed to take a donkey if the Lord needed it. So um, they did that and the Lord needed it. So apparently God had been at work in the donkey situation, arranging the transportation. There had been some level of preparation in the lives of the family with the donkey. These are the stories like... When you've, read, when you've read this text a few times, like, I like to sort of meditate. Maybe someone should do a short film on this family, how the message about the donkey came to them. Was it surprising? Were they like, surely that can't be God? Why would, why would someone come and take our donkey? Um, I mean, how do you think the message came to them? Let's just stop all the serious Jesus talk for a minute and think, how do you think the message came to them about the donkey? I'm asking you for real. I want to know. I had a terrible joke come into my mind yesterday, but I'm going to try it. Um, some, like just to, to imagine, like a hearing a voice this time tomorrow, someone's going to come into town and they're going to take your donkey. All right, so let's keep going. There's other stuff I want to say. There's another word for donkey that was sort of part of it, anyway let it, let it marinate, let it land. All right. So they had this prearranged donkey that, that God has sorted out for them. And then there's this procession. They had to get into the city, but it's a holiday. Um, and, and there's this marking of the moment that takes place where they throw the, 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 the crowds that are there, they throw their, their cloaks on the ground. They, they wave these palm branches and we, 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 even see quoted in the other Gospels that Jesus is fulfilling an ancient promise from Zechariah 9 that when God comes to rescue his people, when Messiah shows up, he's going to come, come riding into town, somehow righteous and victorious and also lowly and humble, that Jesus is, is fulfilling this, this, this mixture of seemingly ordinary, mundane details, ancient prophecy, the work of God, all sort of swirling around this, this, this one particular moment. The tension in the story of Jesus is mounting at this point. The gospel writers do not want us to miss the significance of this week, even if you just look at how they lay out their narratives of Jesus' life. They, they, they go through so much of his, his three-year public ministry, but when they get down to the last week, they slow things down and they, they zoom in. It's like we, we can't miss what's, what's taking place in this last week of Jesus' life. So along with this growing sense of importance, I want us to see if we haven't already this great overlap that there are ordinary hopes and expectations of a holiday week. Some time off, right? Just that human desire to get some relief. And we have the miracles of God helping with something like transportation, right? We want the miracles of God to be only in the big things of life. But it is in often in the small mundane details of our life where, where we actually need God to show up really profoundly. I, I, think, I think there's a reality that we don't always know the ways God is using our story to weave in with someone else. Like it's amusing to me about the family with the donkey. Did they have any idea? Were they just taking a simple step of obedience and they had no idea what that simple step of obedience, the implications that it was gonna have? Did they have any idea that it was gonna be fulfilling a prophecy from hundreds of years before? I take that same idea to my own heart, to my own life, to your hearts, to your lives. When God invites us into a simple act of obedience, so many times we have no idea the implications. I think God hides them from us because we might be arrogant or prideful if we knew the full scope of, of, of the impact our lives can have. And this is both positively and negatively. But when we take those simple steps of faith, we, we often don't understand the full scope of the impact. We have, we have the overlap, this arrival of Messiah in Jerusalem. And then we have in this story, just regular old human grade jealousy showing up. Jesus is praised as king. And then moments later, he's weeping over the city. There's a great convergence, an overlap of of human emotion and human experience and the supernatural and the divine and the promises of God, and they are converging on Jerusalem outside the city gates. It's true for us too. We're, we're gonna talk this week and next week about life and death and resurrection. And, and Christians, right, we're famous for using these grandiose words, but we're, 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 it's, we're, we're doing it in, in a middle school auditorium, right? Less than perfectly comfortable chairs, we have our fluorescent lighting. I'm grateful for this space, but it doesn't often feel like a sanctuary. It's a reminder to me that the life of following Jesus, whatever else it is, it takes place in the real world. It takes place in our real emotions. It takes place in our real pain, our real hope, our real work weeks when we're dying for a week off. The life of following Jesus is not, does not take place on, on just some elevated spiritual plane of pristine contemplation that takes place in the muck and the mire of real life. So as you consider what's going on in your real life today, right, the things that are never that far away from us, I want to ask you to see a few things from this simple story of Jesus walking in Jerusalem. I want us to look at, at them because they're right there on the surface, and then I just want to ask us a couple questions about our own hearts First, the, the, the things I want us to sort of see are, as I said, they're right there. We're not diving super deep, but it's the sacrificial love of God. It's the impossible mixture that every person is. And then we see something at the end of this that breaks the heart of God, breaks the heart of Jesus. And then I want to close, as I said, with a few questions. So uh, let's begin with the sacrificial love of God. I did say let's begin. All that other stuff was just intro. Now we're beginning the talk, so start the timer. The first words of the text, the sacrificial love of God, the first words of the text are after Jesus had said this, he went on ahead going up to Jerusalem. Of course, this is just a simple narrative detail moving us along. Jesus has to get to the next place. The writers have to tell us that he's doing that. So after he gave a teaching, he got up and he went to Jerusalem. But there is some, some significance there. Jesus allowed himself to be, to be limited By being born, and this is a a challenging theological concept for our imaginations to grasp. But the the testimony of the scriptures is that Jesus existed as God, and that God—even our conceptions of it—like you would not come up with this on on your own, I don't think, because it's too challenging to explain. And and, you know, we, we need faith where our reason fails. But the scriptures from Genesis to Revelation depict God in three persons. He is is one God and yet he is a community, Father, Son, Holy Spirit. So that means in the very, right, we've talked about this so many times before at Trinity Grace Park Slope, but that means in the very nature of God's existence is not simply power, but is love. So when 1 John says, God is love, it literally means in in the actual nature and being of God is love, is relationship, is community. And that's what spills over into creation. But that Jesus, the second person of the Trinity, had the glory and majesty and power, intimate relationship, the, the, the beauty of divinity was his. And he allowed himself to be significantly limited by being born. Our imagination's... Have to stretch to make room for this, or maybe if you're looking for a reason not to believe, you're like, "There's one." But here's how the incarnation, which is our our, our word for Jesus coming and uh, in the, in the form of a person, God in in flesh, the Word made flesh came and dwelt among us. The, that 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 experience is summarized in Philippians chapter two as. As a, as a city church is trying to wrestle with the implications of who Jesus is, the Apostle Paul writes to them, and he's like, listen, in how you deal with one another, let your community be like the community of the Trinity. Let your mindset be like the mindset of Jesus in how you treat one another, how you take care of one another, how you defer and move around one another, how you sort of like don't demand that people revolve around you, but you move out to revolve around them and bring them in. He says, in your relationships with one another, have the same mindset as Christ Jesus. Who being in very, in very nature God, did not consider equality with God something to be used to his own advantage. Rather, he made himself nothing. By taking, the, by taking the very nature of a servant and being made in human likeness and being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself. The claim is this, so simple. Still stretches us. Jesus' very nature is God. God is relationship, Father, Son, Holy Spirit. Jesus laid aside that glory and made himself nothing. I mention this this because of this detail about him going to Jerusalem. Almost nothing is said to us about the first 30 years of Jesus' life. We know that more than likely he worked in his his family's trade, uh, that he probably worked with his hands some type of construction perhaps. But we have this one instance where he gets super lost when he's 12 and he ends up at church. And his parents like, where were you? He's like, I was at my father's house. You guys are, aren't acting like you remember that. That happened. Okay? You are there? 12 years old. Jesus gets lost. Look it up. Um, but then at Jesus, when he's 30. He, at his baptism, something significant happens. We're, giving, we're given a picture of the Holy Spirit descending on Jesus. So for the first 30 years... However Jesus loved. Now there's all the narratives around his birth. He is, he's laid aside his glory and yet he is still man and God at the same time. But something significant, a shift takes place at the beginning of his public ministry. He's baptized in the river by John and then the Holy Spirit descends on him. So everything that you see happening for the next three years, Jesus is fully surrendered to and led by the Holy Spirit. He gets his directions from the Father led by the Holy Spirit. The Trinity is participating in the life and ministry of Jesus. And what the, the the Spirit does and the Father directing does is give Jesus a sure sense of what he's come to do. But when he explains what he's come to do to his disciples who are getting more and more excited about his ministry, they can't get it. This is pre-Pentecost. They're not full of the Holy Spirit in the way that they will be one day. But when Jesus tries to explain, in the Gospel of Luke, he does it three times. He tries to tell them: listen, I'm going to Jerusalem to be arrested, to be killed. To, to die, and right they're freaking out about this, like everything's going so well, let's not do that, let's avoid that, and they, 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 they miss it over and over again. I'll, I'll give you the, uh, the, the third attempt of Jesus explaining to his disciples what is going to happen to him in Jerusalem, this is just the chapter before the one we're reading this morning, Jesus took the 12 aside and told them, we are going up to Jerusalem and everything that is written by the prophets about the Son of Man will be fulfilled. He will be delivered over to the Gentiles. They will mock him, insult him, and spit on him. They will flog him and kill him. On the third day, he will rise again. The disciples did not understand any of this. Its meaning was hidden from them and they did not know what he was talking about. Seems pretty clear, but for some reason, because of their expectations, because of what they had built up, In their hopes around Jesus, they just couldn't come to terms with that being the plan. Let's not do that. Let's not go to Jerusalem. And so the simple narrative detail, Jesus gave a teaching, and then he moved on towards Jerusalem has incredible significance. It means at least this. Even if you struggle to believe, and as surely all of us do at times, the love of God for you, the love of God for me, the love of God for our neighbor is so profound that Jesus is willing to walk into what he knows is going to be a horrific trap. He's willing to keep moving towards Jerusalem. In a sense, his whole life he's been moving towards Jerusalem and he's willing to keep going. He surveys the full situation, full view of what's going to happen. He's been empowered by the Holy Spirit, led by the Father to understand. And he says, in light of knowing all that's going to happen, your healing Your redemption, your experience of mercy, your adoption into the family, your full participation in the kingdom of God now and forever is worth it. That was worth it to Jesus. All the agony that Jerusalem was going to hold for him was worth it to embrace you as son, to embrace you as daughter, to say you're part of my family forever. I want you to be so close with me that my very spirit fills your life. I want you to know the Father the way I know it. I want you to know what it is to be part of the family of God forever. The sacrificial love of God is present in this Palm Sunday story. And he deliberately and intentionally walked into it, right? That is a type of heroism that we recognize even in our, in our own world. When someone knows there's danger present and, and for the sake of others, they go, they go into the midst of it. You and I find ourselves in, t- in tons of painful situations. We don't, have to, we don't have to stretch our imaginations to get there. We find ourselves in agony at times, in confusion In disappointing moments of life. Some of them we bring on ourselves. Some of them just happen to us. We find ourselves in the middle of of the pain. Palm Sunday, whatever else it is, it is a reminder for us that the sacrificial love of God has been demonstrated. That whatever else we can say in our joy or in our pain, we cannot say that we are alone. God is willing to walk into the middle of it with us. He is willing to go to Jerusalem. His sacrificial love is present palm sunday is jesus showing the strength of the commitment of his love to be with us in all of those times because for our sake he walked into jerusalem so that's the first thing the sacrificial love of god the second thing i want us to see maybe even admit if we're willing is the impossible mixture of every person how what a mixed bag all of us are right we, we, we see it on the surface level of this narrative. The disciples and friends and worshipers have come to give praise to Jesus. The text tells us that they honored him by spreading their cloaks on the ground. They waved their palm branches. Wave your palm branches, if you will, with me for a minute. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. I see that hand. I see that hand. That's wonderful. Sorry, we're contractually obligated. Our palm provider asks us to have you wave them. Just kidding. But, all right, they come out to wave their palms and to, to spread their cloaks before Jesus. They're singing praise. They're, they're they're hearkening back to the promises. Hosanna, will you save us, right? We know that just 150 years before, Judas Maccabeus had led a, a, a force of the army into Jerusalem and had driven out the other occupiers. Maybe this is another moment like that. And you know what they did when Judas Maccabeus dro- drove out the enemies from Jerusalem? They waved palm branches. They're saying, let's do it again. Let's get Rome out of here. It's time to establish Israel again as Israel, let the kingdom of God and Jesus sit on the throne. Let's do this. They called him king. Here's the words. When he came near the place where the road goes down to the Mount of Olives, the whole crowd of disciples began joyfully to praise God and loud voices for all the miracles they had seen. Blessed is the king who comes in the name of the Lord. Peace in heaven and glory in the highest. What would you want from a king? I mean, we are just inundated with such great leadership in our country right now that it's hard to even imagine. Like, what more could you want? (sighs) What could you want from a king? He healed the sick. What do you want from a king? He healed the sick. Health care, check. He fed the hungry, right? Jobs and provision, check. Check. They, some of them had seen him calm a storm. Power on our side, check. He had raised Lazarus from the dead. Okay, now what, that's like Google stuff. What could this man not do? All the boxes are checked. This is the man who should rule over us. He is king. We cry out, Hosanna. One last item of business. Ride down into Jerusalem. Throw out Rome. Take the throne. Let's begin. Whatever criticism we might levy on the crowd that day, we can recognize ourselves there as human beings. We have real, profound needs, like those things that Jesus miracles provided for are real human needs. We, we we have needs physically, emotionally, spiritually. And what do we do? We try to find someone or something to meet those deep needs of our life, our our, our physical, emotional, and spiritual needs. When we find someone or something that looks like it has a real potential for meeting the deepest needs of our life, we latch on to those things. We, will, we ascribe attention and, and devotion, affection, even at times worship to that person or thing, because they, they represent the possibility that the deepest needs of our life could really be met. And those needs are there and God knows about them. The text says they've seen Jesus' miraculous power and because of that they call him king. say yes you're the one who can meet these needs for us and you know what they weren't wrong it's just their diagnostic of their truest needs were a little off and maybe even their diagnostic of what would make for peace in the world and peace in their region and peace in in our city and their city was a little off And Jesus isn't just coming to be Judas Maccabeus and give us another, you know, 50 or 80 years of peace before the next strong ruler comes in and conquers. He's trying to begin a revolution that is going to sweep over the entire world from generation to generation and do something that can't be undone. That's what Palm Sunday represents. This is a true moment of worship, and Jesus is worthy and deserving of it. In fact, when the Pharisees who are observing this, they've come sort of, you see them arms crossed on the edge of the crowd scorning this upcountry Messiah who hasn't had their training and doesn't have their pedigree. They're perceiving him as a threat. You can sort of see their jealousy hanging over them. And they say, some of the Pharisees in the crowd said to Jesus, Teacher, rebuke your disciples. And, and, And Jesus, I tell you, he replied, if they keep quiet, the stones will cry out. Jesus is saying, listen, you can't stop this. All of God's kingdom, the history of the world... The history of redemption have been bending towards this moment. These people are doing what they're made to do. They're reveling in God's goodness and love, and they're doing it together in community. Love God with your heart, soul, mind, and strength. Love your neighbor as yourself. a summary of what we're made for. These people are recognizing the moment. They're giving Jesus praise. They're crying out, some surely in faith, some even if they were just caught up in the moment. But even, even with that declaration, they show us what a mixture we all are. The commentators debate to some degree about how many from this, from this group on Palm Sunday that was crying out Hosanna, that was calling him king, that was saying, we want you to save us. How many of them would have been in the crowd the next Friday crying crucify him? We don't know exactly. But maybe some of them, right? How long does it take us <laughs> To go from saying, will you save us? We, we need you. You're our, our king to cry and crucify him. And we know even if these exact people weren't in the crowds there, they, they still weren't present and that says something, right? If they weren't actively calling for Jesus' death, they weren't saying anymore, you're our king. You're the one we're putting our hope in. You're Hosanna. Will you save us? Their voices were at least silenced if not fully turned against Jesus. And so the rocks would need to cry out. Soon we would need the testimony of a stone rolled away. We are a mixture, all of us, and you didn't need my convincing of that before you came here. I'm imagining, because I just drew this stuff from my own heart. We are those who lift our hands in praise, and we are also those who are willing to say, crucify him. We want Jesus as our king, but then we really like to be our own kings also. We are full of love and full of selfishness. We might be willing to loan the donkey to our neighbor, but then we will make fun of him behind his back for needing it. We long to be full of the Spirit. We also like to be full of wine. The Spirit is willing, but the flesh is weak. We are a mixture. We long for the world to be made right. We want the world to be made right. But if we're honest, we know that we still play a role in it being broken. So we become the peace activists with a bad temper. We're the worshiper who is also a gossip. We're the hollow, selfish preacher who thinks that his words define his character. We're the values voter with a pornography addiction, the insecure prophets clamoring for recognition. We're giving parenting advice and then screaming at our kids. We sing our devotion to Jesus. But we know it's really with our job. And so because of those things, because of the mixture that we are, and I don't say these to condemn you. I say these because these are drawn from my own heart. <laughs> because I know what it is to be that mixed bag myself. We need, we need Palm Sunday. We need Jesus to be willing to walk into the middle of that mess, to be willing to walk willingly into Jerusalem, not to pat the righteous on the back but to rescue all of us in our impossible mixture. Second Corinthians 5.21 sums it up this way. God made him who had no sin to be sin for us so that we might become the righteousness of God. This is the fundamental exchange of the gospel. All of all of our sin and brokenness, all the mixture of who we are gets placed on Jesus. He bears the full burden of it as he rides into Jerusalem and then ultimately on the cross as, as the Father turns away from him and he bears the full burden. He becomes sin for us so that we might become the righteousness of God so that everything that's represented in Jesus' life and death and resurrection becomes ours. Not generally like saying, okay, now Jesus is a, is a teacher that I'm going to add to sort of the sort of, um, the, the stable of people that I'm willing to listen to, but saying, no, he, we've literally had a transfer of life. My old way of life has gone away, and now I'm living a new way of life with Jesus. That's why he has walked into Jerusalem to win for us. God made him who had no sin to be sin for us, that we might become the righteousness of God, that the very character of Jesus could be formed and each of us as sons and daughters, that his spirit would fill us, that we would be led by his spirit in the way Jesus was led. So here's what we've said, right? We need redemption. Redemption. We need healing, forgiveness, a whole new kind of life with God. And guess what? Palm Sunday says that redemption has come. It has shown up. It has walked into Jerusalem. And as we're going to see throughout the rest of this week, everything necessary has been done for us to be brought into the family. We need redemption, and redemption has come. But then we come to this moment in the story that breaks God's heart, something that breaks the heart of Jesus. Listen to these last words. As he approached Jerusalem and saw the city, he wept over it. It said, if you, even you, had only known on this day what would bring you peace, but now it is hidden from your eyes. The days will come when, when your enemies will build an embarkment against you and will encircle you and hem you in on every side. They will dash you to the ground, you and, your, and the children within your walls, and they will not leave one stone on another because you did not recognize the time of God's coming to you. Palm Sunday shows us several things, that we have this convergence of God's provision and our need coming together. We need what's being provided. We need a king, not like the violent kings of earth earth who wield their power for a generation through conquering their rivals, but we need an everlasting king who can set up a kingdom of peace. And that king has come, but there's still the heartbreaking chance that we will not see it. And those dynamics are hard. Those dynamics cause Jesus to weep. Why? Well, we might cling to being our own king. We might have been taught and gotten so used to dressing up the true needs of our soul and the true needs of our world with pride. Even if it's temporary pride, it protects us from our sense of need. We're also so rooted sometimes in another system that we cannot embrace or be embraced by the love of God. This causes Jesus to weep. Oh, that you would not see this moment for what it is. Would you not hear me calling out to you? For Jerusalem, there was something specific. By AD 70, literally the city was going to be routed. The temple was going to be destroyed. There there is an, an agony around Jesus saying, you're missing your moment. Painful reckoning is coming. And I want to say that that reality, right, it's not so pleasant for us to consider, but the personal and shared consequences of missing or refusing to see Jesus for who he is, they are devastating. Personal and shared consequences for not acknowledging the love that has been shown to us, for not acknowledging the invitation that's being offered to us. Right? And our, Maybe your mind immediately jumps to the hypothetical philosophical question, well, maybe I'm being offered, but what about all the people who aren't, right? And that's a reasonable question to ask. But if you could just set that question aside for just a minute. What have you been shown? What ways has Jesus demonstrated his love for you? What ways have you felt the promptings of the Holy Spirit? Are we those who are missing our moment? That's a question, Palm Sunday, along with the sacrificial love of God, the admission that we are a mixture in need of redemption. We're also like, will you hear his voice today? Can we learn to humble ourselves as people, as a church, as a nation? How late is it in the story of our nation? I'm not a prepper. I don't have an apocalypse bag packed in my storage unit. But like things are getting strange out there. What type, what type of groundswell of humility and repentance and, and working and, and love for change would it take to see transformation in small pockets in our, in our city, in other cities, in our world, in our nation? It, it's not too late, even if it is very late. So our question is, what is God doing in our midst? We say, God, where have you ridden in and we've ignored you? Where have we clung to our pride and selfishness? Where have we been so sure of our education, our sophistication, our progress to make our lives great and to solve the world's issues? Where have we stubbornly gone back to the sins that you've given us freedom from? When did you call us, but I would rather watch TV and scroll through my feeds? How do we know when when God shows up? When he breaks into your life, you'll begin to sense him calling you to know God as he really is. You'll experience grace because that's how the kingdom works. It's not like get yourself cleaned up, make sure that you're paying attention to all the signs, make sure you don't miss it, and if you do all this right, you'll be in. No, it's utter unmerited grace and favor. It's all that Jesus has done on our behalf. It's like, will you receive it? Will you, Can we have the humility to accept the gift? He will invite you to join in the family. He will invite you to join in the kingdom, to not just be someone who's like mentally a sense. Here's the four boxes of doctrine I've checked that sort of stamp me as a card-carrying believer in Jesus. It's, am I fully participating in the life of the Trinity? Do I pray in the name of Jesus? Am I led by the power of the Holy Spirit and his love? Am I listening to the agenda of the kingdom of God for the Father, for, for my family, for my heart, for my, for my job, for the city, for the world? When he breaks into our life, he wants us to make, to make us as alive as he is. As alive as we have always been truly meant to be. So close to God that his spirit is in us. To put it in the words of the scriptures, he will give you resurrection life. But he will ask you to die to yourself in the process. And that's where like, I, I have to be honest. I can do the songs, raise the hand, wave the branches, the religious activity I'm familiar with I was trained in it since I was a kid. I watched other people do it. when it comes down to the question of that real intersection of, "Will I die to myself?" and allow Christ to live in me? Will I humble myself? Will I confess my sins? Will I walk in my freedom? Will I admit as much as I long for the world to be made right that I'm a part of its brokenness? Will I be real in that way? So as we hear the voice of God on this Palm Sunday, the voice of the Holy Spirit, let us not turn away from it. Today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts. that's what Jesus weeps over in this story we have a few examples of Jesus weeping in the scriptures, one is over death in a holy week he comes to confront death, the other is, is, is a vast majority of people missing their moment where they're being invited and loved and he weeps over that he's speaking but they will not listen, he's offering truth and forever life but they say no thanks we've got it from here so I want us to go back Remember how sacrificially he loves you. Remember that he begins with grace. Remember that he's not confused. He knows that you are a mixture. He is ready and willing to be with us in the midst of real life. He is offering us life with him, life in his spirit that does not end. Let me pray for you. Heavenly Father, I was almost startled this week coming to that that moment where you stopped and looked over the city and and cried because of the pain that was going to happen there. We have so many pictures of you offering a joyful invitation saying that you give abundant life, but... God, may we also feel the ache in your heart when, we, when we're stubborn, when we refuse, when we cling to our pride. I pray, Holy Spirit, we can't deal with that on our own. We need you to break it down for us. We need you to show us the specific ways that you're inviting us this morning, the specific ways you're bringing conviction, the specific ways you're inviting us to know life and love, to be in your kingdom. We confess before you, God, it is easy for us to call you king one day and then to say crucify him on another. Would you have mercy on us? Would you allow the love that was breaking into Jerusalem all that time ago to break into our hearts, to break into this room, to lead us? Lead us, Holy Spirit, and how we should respond this morning. May we be those who say, today we are hearing his voice and we will respond. In Jesus' name, amen.